We were made for relationships, made by God to be in community, and yet far too many people today were often lonely and lacking friends, even when they're surrounded by other people. Classical Christian schools should be places where rich friendships are abundant, from the classrooms to the hallways and even extending into our homes and churches. But friendship, as our guest Justin Early will remind us today, doesn't happen without intentional effort. So what are the habits that we and our children need to actively pursue in our daily lives to fulfill God's design for us, since we were, in fact, made for people? Join us for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome back to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Hope you had an amazing and encouraging Thanksgiving with your family. I am very thankful for all of you and for your taking the time to join us each week for Basecamp Live. We're continuing to double down on our efforts here to help you raise the next generation as you're a part of classical Christian schools and Christian homes. It's getting increasingly challenging to raise young people, and that's something that Keith McCurdy and I are joining forces on. You keep hearing us reference that. He's obviously on a lot of episodes. We're going to be doing more together, not only here at Basecamp Live, but actually getting out to your schools. We would love to come and be on your campus in 2024. You're going to be hearing more about that in an upcoming episode, but you can go to livesturdy.com or the Basecamp website and hear a little bit more about kind of our speaking and the things we're offering. Again, a lot more coming soon. And more than anything, just love to hear from you. So give us a shout out, info at Basecamp Live. Let us know what's on your mind. We'd love to come and visit you, even do a Basecamp Live show from your school. It would be a lot of fun and encouragement to all of us. And a special thanks for this episode uh, to our sponsors. We've got folks that come alongside us that are great organizations that share our values and our views and are bringing great resources that we need as we're raising the next generation. So a shout out to America's Christian Credit Union, to Classical Academic Press, to the Good Agency, to Alliance Defending Freedom, to the Focus Group, Classic Learning Test, and and, to, and for uh, Gordon College for being a sponsor here at Basecamp Live. Well, Justin Early is back. He is an attorney, an author, a speaker from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, most of all, he's a husband to Lauren and a father to his four sons. He graduated from UVA with a degree in English literature before spending four years in Shanghai, China, teaching and writing. He's got a law degree from Georgetown University, and he's a prolific writer. Back in 2019, he wrote The Common Rule, Habits, A Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And then he turned around 2021 and wrote Habits of the Household, Practicing the Story of God in Everyday Family Rhythms. That was a podcast we did. If you not heard it, it's uh, there on the Basecamp Live website. You can go back and take a look at it. And now he's here with his third book, Made for People, Subtitle, Why We Drift into Loneliness and How to Fight for a Life of Friendship. A wonderful and relevant topic to our schools and our homes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Justin Early. Well, Justin Early, welcome back to Basecamp Live. Thank you. I'm honored that you'll have me back. Uh, you know, when you come on like you did in uh, December of 21, episode 197, and talking about your book, Habits of the Household, and you end up being in the top five of all-time Basecamp Live episodes, that's pretty impressive, Justin. <laughs> no pressure, right? Well, we'll, That's right. We'll, we'll see if it can happen again. Well, you know, it's because you you really hit a nerve and, you know, obviously the, the, your book Habits of the Household is is very much the world that most of us live in in classical Christian schools of how do we, what are these habits we're forming and what does that really look like on a day-to-day -day basis? But your newest book, 
I'm especially excited about entitled Made for People. Your subtitle is Why We Drift into Loneliness and How to Fight for a Life of Friendship. And, you know, we we live, I remember a number of years ago, I guess it was Robert Putnam's book came out, Bowling Alone. And I always thought that was a really, this was like in the late 90s, early 2000s. I thought, what an image of Americans. We go right, uh, into right. bowling alleys and we bowl alone. Like that's just right. sad and weird. So loneliness, What what is loneliness? Let's just start with the basics. Yeah, there's a there's a Surgeon General's answer and there's a Genesis answer, and they're actually closer than you would think. Um, but it's important to pay attention. The statistics on loneliness are getting really, really bad, and the, they are describing a quality of life that is where your inner life of relationship is disconnected from your expected life of outside relationship, and so it's just sort of a a gap between who you are on the inside and whether people actually know you, right? And I think it's important just to note, there's a lot of, you know, public health data coming out now that I'm sure everybody's heard, but it's really worth pausing and realizing that the public health data is showing that this kind of chronic loneliness reduces your life expectancy to the tune of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's serious, serious health impact. And they're not talking about social isolation, which is a recluse being alone in an apartment. They're talking about people like you and me who are around other people, but not fully known by them. And I think this is remarkable because that is kind of how Genesis would describe loneliness too. It would be a little more robust, but here it is. God creates Adam in Genesis 2 and says, it's not good that you are alone, which is just a remarkable thing for God to say when God is there present with Adam before the fall. This is Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. And so we have this big red flashing theological signal at the beginning of the Bible that a relationship with a human being and God is incomplete until there are other human beings in the picture. Not because God is incomplete, obviously. Not because God is not enough, but because let us make man in our own image. It's because we're created in the communal Trinitarian image of God, such that we can't experience him the way we're made to experience him until we experience him around alongside other people. And this is the paradise we're made for. This is the paradise of Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2 being naked and unashamed. And that's exactly the paradise we lost in the fall. The first consequences of sin are fig leaves and bushes, right? We hide from each other and we hide from God. So this idea that loneliness kills us, that the public health data is showing, is like we are rediscovering the truth of Genesis and saying when we are isolated from other people, it is because of sin and it is deadly, spiritually and physically. Well, it's a, yeah, you're right. As you talk about in the book, friendship is a matter of life and death. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. You think about like the worst type of place, you know, for prisoners, like the worst, you do the worst type of things, yes. you're in solitary confinement. Like why, why that is, is that? That is the worst type of punishment. Right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about that. Soul punishment. Soul punishment. So why, I mean, it does seem like it's getting worse. I mean, what, I mean, I'm sure COVID has something to do with it. I know in the book, you talk about kind of a lot societal changes. Like we don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up going to church three times a week. I mean, we just don't have that kind of life on life engagement. Is that part of it or what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think you've got to realize that on the one hand, we've always struggled with the sin of loneliness, right? So we, we are always trending towards not knowing each other, not being vulnerable to each other and hiding from God. That's Genesis 3 stuff. But there is a real 
deadly current going on in American culture right now. And I phrase it this way in the subtitle, why we drift into loneliness and how to fight for a life of friendship. Because everything about American, really Western life, is trending towards individualism, is trending towards isolation, is trending towards loneliness. So unless you radically alter the way you live, you will probably live in a house where you are trending towards the back deck rather than the, rather than the front porch where you meet neighbors. You're probably trending towards a garage where you enter your house alone rather than you know, a street side entrance where you might see and wave to somebody. You're trending towards social media instead of embodied conversations. You, you're trending towards workstations that are remote from other people. There's just so many actual modes of life that you look at that are trending towards loneliness. And it is kind of a like, no wonder we feel isolated. And importantly, philosophically on a worldview basis, we're also for centuries now have been trending towards an idea that me individualistically, autonomously, I am the deter- you know, arbiter of my own future. And all these, all these things are colliding now into yeah. a whirlpool that is sucking people into a vicious vicious mm. loneliness such that finally public health officials are saying, oh my gosh, we got to do something. This is worse than obesity. This is worse than smoking. Yeah. And I would just say, what an opportunity for the church to be a light to our culture and say, well, that's right. We do need to do, do something because we were made for people by a God who made us for fellowship. And we have an answer for this. It starts spiritually. Well, and I think the idea of, of a drift is really interesting as, as you're talking, Justin. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like, I mean, we're for the most part, most babies are born in, in environments where there's a mother there, there's a sense of connection and belonging from the early start. And then it's it's like it is, it's like a drift of just independence and ice and then it leads into eventual kind of isolation. And it is very cultural. I think about when I've you know been in some different third seems like the third world countries you often go into and you'll see. 25 people sitting around a fire at night, you know, cooking food. And there's just an embedded community in some of these environments. We are horrible about that as Americans. Yes. And I think, yeah, yeah. it just, um, yeah, it is a drift. I think that's a fascinating that you picked that word. One of the things I love about those analogies, because they're, they're true, is that um, for all the wonderful things technologies have brought to us, we now tend to gather around the light of glowing screens rather than the light of glowing embers. And that is a serious and probably most significant shift in, in how we live yeah. that, um, and I, I write it, I have a whole chapter on technology in this book, which it, it is a, a vicious cause of our loneliness that, that now we tend to mediate our relationships through screens instead of over fires. And one of my cop calls in this book would be, you know, have more backyard fires. Like, yeah. like literally, you sit in your backyard with people more and like and follow less. And you, the uh, health results, the mental health results, yeah. the spiritual results are sort of, on the one hand, intuitive, but way more than you would expect. Well, and I, I love your story in the book of, about your friend Steve, I guess, early on. And just this sort of moment that I think we probably all have those moments where we remember, especially probably in our middle school years or whatever it was, maybe as a new school, and you just that, that gut wrenching feeling of showing up and you don't know anybody and nobody knows you and you're just, you just desperately want to belong, which is how so many kids end up in gangs and other places because anything, mm-hmm. anyone that will pay me attention or honestly, I, you know, certainly a whole nother related conversation is just where are we today with, with the loss of kind of church youth group or, or gathering in, in Christ centered communities. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these sort of more aberrant, um, 
you know, groups of, you know, gender dysphoria people or whatever coming together and saying, hey, well, I'll love you. Come over and be one of me. And so you just Mm -hmm. see what happens catastrophically when you lose uh, community in the way you're describing. Yeah, I I like that story. And the short version for anybody listening is, yeah, I I started in high school. I just moved and I knew no one. Everything was horrible, right, about ninth grade because I was totally... It's alone, always horrible, you know. It, it is. You know, it's a tough. It's a tough time of life, especially um, when you're friendless. But that that is what I remember. So I had, you know, I started to get to know this other guy, and long story short, we had this really funny and awkward interaction at the locker where he blurts out, "We think it was him. We can't quite remember." You do you want to be best friends? <laughs> and I agreed casually, like it was a good decision, um, and that was that. And what was it was so awkward. And yet everything about my life from that point on changed. Um, and ever since then, I've had this feeling that I was made for this. And, and the two things that I take, I would take many things away from that encounter, but two of the bigger ones are one, I thought all the difficulty, all the anxiety, all the depression of, of high school and adolescence was just baked into life. And I look back now and I see that largely it's baked into loneliness. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of people now. There's a lot of things that you think, oh, life is just so hard, just so difficult to parent. It's just so difficult to live in this culture. It's just so difficult to whatever. And I want to remind people that to a large extent, it may be that those difficulties and those anxieties don't come from your circumstances, but from the fact that you're facing your circumstances alone incredible things happen when you face the exact same adversities alongside a friend. And that, that for me, the second thing that I take from that story was just the power of naming that, of saying, Hey friend, do you want to face the world with me? Which, you know, is awkward. But one of the things that I want people to fight for in this book is more awkward moments, more intentional moments where you sort of speak and name this desire for community because it's so often what actually sparks a different future. Well, and I think what you're, you're, again, one of the things I so appreciate about the book and what I was convicted reading is that I think we, we generally, whether we're parents or in schools or, or just as parents in our homes, that we, we all know friendship's important, but w- when have we really taken the time to articulate what healthy friendship should look like? Like you're talking about, like, oh, that's normal and that's not normal. Like, what it, how do we know what normal is, which I think we need to speak into our children? And then ultimately, what's the path? And you've done a great job of sort of defining this journey and some of the steps and stages that one needs to acknowledge as part of that process. But I don't know anybody, Justin, that's really articulated that to say, look, we need to, we need to kind of know what the rules of engagement are here to engage this world or else, we, yeah, we probably will be lonely and off in the corner. Why don't we take a quick, quick break? I want to I I come back because I'd love for you to kind of walk us through this because I think you've got some secret sauce here that I think a lot of people are going to be interested to hear. We'll be right back with Justin Early. I want to mention an organization that I'm really excited to be partnering with. You know, most of us engage with businesses every day that provide excellent services, but are all too often actually funding initiatives and ideologies that are out of alignment with what we deeply value as families and churches and schools. And that's why Basecamp Live is proud to partner and do our banking with America's Christian Credit Union, a banking institution that only serves and invests in kingdom causes. So whether you're managing a school, a home, a small business, ACCU, can meet your banking needs while upholding your biblical values. Find out why tens of thousands of families and ministries across the country have chosen to bank with ACCU by visiting americaschristiancu.com slash Basecamp. 
just as we think about this idea of friendship, it's it's one of those words that's sort of, I mean, again, I think every, who would say they don't, friendship isn't a good thing and that we all need friends. But I think as parents and especially in, in our classical Christian schools and our churches, it's like, we don't really take the time to parse it down a level. Like not all, friendship isn't all the same. And I love in the book, you talk about kind of these three levels, their acquaintances, their covenant friendships, and then there's marriage. Like, and I mm-hmm. kind of get the marriage side, but walk us through, I mean, your goal is, I guess, for us to catch a vision for what you're calling covenant friendship. What is that? And yes. why is that a goal? Yeah. A big goal is to name a kind of friendship because the word friendship has been so diluted. And I don't want to necessarily blame this on, on anybody, but C.S. Lewis would have noted, noted this, you know, 60 years ago um, in his essay on the four loves, writing about phileos. Even then, he started talking about friendship as a word that has lost its meaning. I mean, to the, to the classics and classical philosophers, this was the, the sap of life. I mean, you know, Aristotle or Plato or many of these thinkers would have said, you know, this is one of the highest virtues. But now a friend is something you can, it's a verb. It's something you do on Facebook with a click, right? So one of my goals is to say, we need to recover a lot of the glory, the spiritual glory of friendship. And the way that I'm trying to do that is by calling it covenant friendship. And I use that intentionally to say, as we talked about a minute ago, if what we lost in the fall was that ability to be vulnerable and, and without shame, to each other and to God, that, that, that idea of being fully known and yet fully loved. That's what we lost in the fall. And we traded that for fig leaves and bushes. What Jesus brings back to us in the gospel, when he calls us friends and, say, and says, no greater love has anyone than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Jesus is saying, I know you fully in all your sin and shame. And yet I call you a friend. And, and in fact, and I will go to the mat for you. I'll die for you. And so I look at these sort of twin pillars of friendship. There's more than this, but there's at least this, the covenant friendship. It's vulnerability plus commitment. And I think when you, when you have vulnerability with somebody carried out over time in some sort of covenant or commitment, it doesn't have to be formal. It can just be you know the sort of sense that we're drawn out over time. I call that covenant friendship because it's, it's an echo of what Christ did for us. And so I use that to say, we need to think about friendship and we should say covenant friendship as a way to say this is sort of on the spiritual level of import that quiet time or, you know, church or the, the words that you like, oh, I know that should be a part of the Christian walk. I want to submit to our modern moment that covenant friendship should be one of the things that we look at the Christian life of discipleship and say, if you're not in covenant friendship with somebody, then you're not living the way that God made you to live. So, I mean, if you had to put a number on it, I mean, I've heard people say, you know, in our, and perhaps true, I mean, in the course of a lifetime, most people only have, I don't know what, two or three, like really, quote, good friends. Maybe you would call them covenant friends. I mean, if you think about a typical school with 20 students, and I mean, I'm sure most of them would fall into the acquaintance category. And then perhaps you would have a goal then. I mean, if you're advising a young person on like, what's realistic, because I think sometimes people feel like, well, everyone's not my friend. So therefore I don't have any friends. It's like, well, you're not going to have mm-hmm. everyone as a friend. Like, what, what's a, how do you right. guide people through that? I would simply say, you know, everybody should have two or three covenant friends. I think that's an easy way to put it. Yeah. Um, and and the, it's important to note, and Aristotle was doing this, many people have, you know, done this, that many, you have many acquaintances, people with whom you, you share a common interest or a common occasion. But 
C.S. Lewis would have said this, Aristotle would have said this, there's a movement in friendship from the common interest to the other, where you have a, an actual love or commitment to the good of the other. That was the virtue that we're talking about. And so I'm rephrasing that and saying, think about it as vulnerability and commitment. But yeah. it's the same idea that you can't do that with that many people. So I don't think we should aspire to have 20 or 30 covenant friends. It's probably impossible. And I don't think we should aspire to have the same covenant friend over the course of our life. That's how it's different than marriage. you know. But But when you look around and say, I've got two or three brothers that I'm walking through high school with, and they know me, and they know all my mistakes. You know, This could be formalized into accountability, or this could just be the natural intimacy that occurs on a soccer team when you play with somebody for four years, and you talk about your life with them too. So I think it's important to note this is not just uh, this is not just acquaintances over time. This is vulnerability over time. That's a big difference. But I would you know love to talk to you know middle schoolers and high schoolers and say. Or, or educators of middle schoolers and high schoolers, and say we should be trying to steward our students. We should be trying to steward our children into a couple of really intimate relationships that will sustain their soul and teach them that that's a mode of life. That then when they go to college, they need to work find new ones, and then when they get in their twenties, they need to you know work on new ones. And some of them will last your life. Maybe that's a blessing. Many of them won't, and you need to continue to work on. It's it's different than marriage. You can go through a lot of covenant friends and still be healthy. But we need a, a virtue of looking to that. Well, and I think, I mean, you're, you're pointing out something that on the one hand seems so obvious. On the other hand, it's just, I think, painfully neglected. I mean, we, as a general rule, culturally, and even as perhaps church and certainly as school, we've not typically done a very good job of defining, first of all, just in the male-female relationship, ultimately the vision for and value for marriage. I mean, that you see that already as a problem. And so a lot of young people come through and they mm-hmm. they don't aspire to marry. I mean, that's a whole other podcast for another day. But I think yeah, so yeah. related. <laughs> but so but it's so related though, Justin, because I don't think this and if we don't do that, we certainly don't what I'm calling the rules of engagement. We're not sitting down with our our wherever they are, the the fourth grade girls before they become the, you know, the the anxious, you know, upset fifth grade caddy girls. Like, how do we get ahead of that? How do we get ahead of the the boys on the soccer team and just say, let me give you a vision for what you've got acquaintances, but what does covenant friendship look right. like? What are the, I yeah. love that you're, so do you not, I mean, it sounds like you would say if you were in a room filled with, you know, school leaders, like, Hey, while you've got them in the building, maybe this should be a conversation you might want to have because it's really central. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I would really emphasize that Davies because this current of American life that we, we, here's what it is. We become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. That's the drift of American yeah. life, yeah. right? And fortunately, it's a true one too. So, and and I'm not talking about the world out there, like oh, that's the culture. But we in the church, or we in classical Christian education, you know, we're swimming in a different current. Like, no, 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 no. Right. We should aspire to. But the problem is, you need to know that the people sitting in your pews, the people sitting in your classical Christian education classrooms, are becoming busier, wealthier people who used to have friends and less you train them otherwise. And that is a fight. Okay. And the, and the thing about a fight, this is book is called why we drift into loneliness and how to fight for a life of friendship. When you're in a fight, you know, you're in a fight. <laughs> you don't like you, you know that you're fighting against the grain, right? You're not like, Oh, that's an afterthought of our education that trains people to be friends. No, you, you, you would have to be saying we live differently. We use technology different. We have different ways of talking to people. We have different vocabulary for it. Um, we would know 
if we were intentionally pursuing and, and educating children and forming them as friends. And if you're like, I don't know if we're doing that, then you're not doing that. Right. right. So, exactly. with, and it's not, it can't be, it's not an assumed result of Christian community because Christian community has to be fought for. So it, it should be, it should be right. I mean, this should be part of our sanctification. I, I say Jesus is friendship made flesh. And if, if Ephesians tells us that we should be imitators of God, our sanctification should necessarily mean that we're becoming more and more like Christ or, or i.e. we're becoming more and more like a friend. But um, I just want to push people from thinking, oh, that's happening naturally in our school. Well, not necessarily. You, you really need to fight for that. You, you're a hundred. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I mean, it's, it, it parallels to me a conversation I had, I remember a couple of years ago, they had a school who was insisting that, you know, the classical Christian schools don't need to teach Bible survey because that's the domain of the church. And I'm like, well, the problem is that they actually don't know the Bible and so, you know, and then the answer is, well, the Bible's sort of in everything we do in our curriculum. I said, well, no, it's really because it's in everything. It's really in nothing. Like you actually have to define, and, and I think you need to do a Bible. That's another podcast. But the point parallel to this, Justin, is yeah. if, you know, oh, it's a classical Christian school, they're all going to be wonderful friends together. Well, you've never actually given them a vision for fighting for this idea of, of becoming deep you mm -hmm. know covenantal friend i think it's it's a brilliant point especially if we claim to be in the business of forming affections and shaping loves and well then how mm -hmm. do we how do you do that so yeah yeah um, and classical education knows how to do that in in theory you know we know how to hold up heroes in literature and and, and read right. great books on it and talk about the virtues of friendship and, and talk about the theology of how if christ called us friends and that's the ultimate that's the goal of salvation that we should be imitating that in the body of Christ. Um, but I don't see that being done. Um, not in our churches it really, and not in our classical schools either. And that was really honestly, Davies, the, the kind of the beating heart of why I wanted to write on this is because I, I honestly do think it's so important, but I think it's a modern spiritual vocabulary that has honestly been forgotten or lost that we need to right. recover. Yeah. Well, and I think in his parents, you know, how do we, how do we guide our children into that? Again, I think, and I hope the parents have some conversation about someday you might want to date and or courtship or whatever all that is. We navigate that, but we don't navigate general friendship. So why don't we take another break and come back? Because yeah. I really, I mean, let's roll our sleeves up for a minute. I mean, obviously the book goes into grand detail on this. What, and I love how you phrase each chapter, kind of the art of, because it's an art. It's not a science. There's an art to this thing. And mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear some of your art lessons on how do we do this. And also I'd love to come back after the break and what do we do about conflict? Because like, wait a minute, things blew up. And how are we going to navigate around that? Because that's definitely part of the uh, reality of friendship. So, all right, we'll be right back after the break. What does Athens have to do with Africa? Would you like to be a part of the global classical Christian movement? The Rafiki Foundation is providing classical Christian education across 10 countries in Africa to underprivileged children. We provide preschool to high school education, Bible study, two meals a day. We like to say the best education for the least of these. Rafiki provides opportunities for classical Christian schools, educators, and families to participate in this movement, either by helping children, providing scholarships for children to go to these classical Christian schools in Africa, or by going yourself for two weeks, two months, or two decades. Find out more at the Rafiki Foundation website or the Rafiki Foundation podcast. Thanks. This is Karen Elliott, the Executive Director.
All right, Justin, if you were in a room with educators, we'll start there and then we'll go to parents. And you've just got everybody saying, we agree, we, we're convicted, we need to be intentional. Like what short of implement everything in the book, which I highly encourage people to do, but what are just some, <laughs> give us a couple of cliff notes. Like what could we do in this art of helping young people and ourselves even form friendship? Yeah, the first thing I would strongly encourage parents or educators to, to think of is, you know, think about how you are the living examples of what you're trying to teach. Because I think everything that I have learned about friendship has come through watching other people do it and being invited into it. So just starting at the adult level, um, I strongly recommend that we be people who are fighting for friendship by scheduling at least an hour a week for it. And that might sound rigid or unspontaneous, right? Because, you know, friendship's not exactly a habit, but what I, what I would, here's the example. Every other Tuesday night, I meet with my two wonderful friends, Matt and Steve. I would, they're my two of my covenant friends. This is and the same Steve not, that you met in middle school? It, it is actually. Yeah. Wow. Same Steve <laughs> from, from high school. We're still yeah. trucking. But, but I do want to just take this chance to note, there's plenty of covenant friendships that I walk with now that you know are not lifelong friendships, right? They're just people I've met in the last couple yeah. of years. So I don't want that to be a, an impression that you can't do this if you're not doing it for decades. But we meet every other Tuesday night and it's just, you know, we get together around the backyard fire pit or, and just start, you know, we kept catching up on lives, talking about our marriages, talking about our kids. But we, two things make this remarkable to me. One, we actually kind of try to stick to the schedule and sure we miss some like with young children or schedules getting off, but just generally you can expect that on a bi-weekly basis, every other week we're seeing each other. And two, through that process, we're becoming people without secrets. There's not an off-limits part of this conversation. And those two things, like having a regular interaction with somebody who knows you fully, that's the most practical way that I know how to say covenant friendship in practice, right? Because remember, it's vulnerability over time or vulnerability plus commitment. This could be a small group. This could be an accountability group. This could be a running club where you hang out for coffee afterwards. But the idea that you show up and that you speak up, those two things put together remarkably change lives. And, and everybody's afraid of another schedule of commitment, but I just want to emphasize anything else that's important to your life, like sleeping or eating or prayer or church, you know, it's happening multiple times a week or many hours a day. The amazing thing about covenant friendship is about an hour a week will fundamentally change everything about your life. And so, and then we become people who model those relationships, right? And that is the first key practice to model them ourselves. So just can I ask just kind of an observation of the way you explain that, which is to, you know, to show up consistently and to speak up. I, I love that because it's simple. And I wonder sometimes if we overcomplicate it or we decide that the reason, hey, every hey, men of the school, men of the church show up, we're gonna, we're gonna read through, you know, Plato's Republic together and this will be a wonderful bonding experience. And it's like, well, you know, that that might actually <laughs> nothing against Plato's Republic, but Maybe it's just showing up and speaking up. Like we just actually need to kind of, because I suspect we're all kind of doing life with some wounds and some challenges and, you know, that, that might be enough to compel us. Yes. I mean, I think of um, institutions as serving friendship when they become sort of a, a funnel, right? Like you, you gather people around big common purposes, but you intentionally push them downward into smaller yeah. meetings. Yeah. So I'm opposed to the the like mega church model, for example, where you're you're trying to 
get as many individual contacts as you can and tell them, come to the service, right? We're trying to push them up to group meetings. Like, no, we want to have our big group meetings be open, our school you know, meetings be like, that's a lot of dads hanging out and doing whatever. But th- w- whatever our institutions are doing, we need to be encouraging people into smaller modes of interaction because it's, you can show up at big meetings, but it's hard to speak up until you're in a group of maybe you know, 10 is probably the biggest, right? Yeah. Five is more ideal. And so thinking about those modes and then, then, you know, Davies, I think, think about this for students. Like how do you get students into places where they are basically in a small group setting, like willing to speak up or, or being required to speak up just that training. And I had this through youth group and it was sort of informal, but I look back and I think this changed my life. This changed my life. I had a youth group leader who got us into small groups and said, Hey, share your life with these other guys. And we started doing that. And we quickly found, like I said earlier, I feel like I'm made for this. You know, this is not the stereotypical men don't talk about their lives. Once you actually get men talking about their lives, they do, and they can be vulnerable and they might not have it on the tip of their tongue, but we all recognize, oh, this is the way I was meant to live once you do it. And giving students a taste for that early and helping them cultivate that practice is one of the strongest things we can do for our children. And to your point, if, if, if kids are looking at mom and dad off, you know, Tuesday night sitting by the fire pit with other dads doing, it's like, well, that's just, that's the rhythm of what healthy living looks like. And so that's, that's a beautiful reminder. I think all the time about, I want my friend, I want my children to see me in friendship, literally see me. Oh, dad's in the backyard or on the front porch talking to his friends again. He does this all the time. Whenever I go to hang out with them, I always tell them if the kids are still up, I say, I'm going out to see your uncle Matt or your uncle Steve to just talk about life. Cause I want them to think, oh, that's what a man does. Right. Mm. Um, and then I, I think another just practice, practice-based thing that I think is really important is to be emphasizing to each other and to children that technological interactions are snacks, but embodied relationships are meals. And we should think of technology accordingly. I want to get a t-shirt with that written on it, by the way, Justin, yes. I think that's a great statement. <laughs> we should, we should make those t-shirts. Can um, we say that again? Like technology is a snack or Technology is a snack, embodied relationships are meals. And go. I think that's very helpful because to me, it reminds me that not, not all snacks are bad. In fact, some are delightful and some can really sustain you until the next meal. But you, we all know what happens if we live on snacks. You know, we have the feeling of being full, but our body is going undernourished. And literally, we would eventually die from that, right? You can't live on snacks. And we need to think the same about our souls with technology. That there are some wonderful things about a text chain. I have great ones with my friends where we share prayer requests and ridiculously funny and sometimes inappropriate memes. I mean, there's like all these funny things, fun things happening on text chains. But if we didn't get together in person yeah. at these, you know, weekend gatherings over the fire pit or these every other night fire pits with Steve and Matt, for example, I would be starving relationally. I would be malformed. And the problem with technology is you, you will feel known and feel liked or loves, but you will be going completely unnourished in actual vulnerability or actual commitment. And that will tear you apart mentally. It will tear, your mental health will collapse and unsurprisingly, your spiritual health will follow. So don't make technology the meal. Well, I would think most, you know, this again is like, how do you get that across to young people? I think a lot of them probably intuitively know that if you just kind of bring that, bring that conversation to light. It was interesting, you know, my, (laughs) 
25, 25 years ago, I'm getting so old now, my doctoral dissertation was on using internet-based technology to build Koinonia community and what that looks like. And so this is part of mm -hmm. my early exploration. And back even in those days of discussion boards and chat rooms, when I worked for Christianity.com, I mean, this was a lot of what we were looking at was it's, it's, a, it's a supplement too. I like the snack model better, but the idea was it's not a replacement of embodied community, but it's an amazing yeah. accelerator towards it. And in fact, I discovered in a lot of my research is it's creating it makes you hungry. It doesn't pull you away from it. It's not a substitute of. It's a, it makes you say, "Hey, we had a can't wait to hang out at the fire pit on Tuesday because we can pick up this conversation, this idea that we started down online that we couldn't go all the way into." So I love that. Yeah. it's a great way to look at it. And I, I think a good you know note for students and teachers to think about is that you know, technology technology in my mind is capital G good. Um, it 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 is part of our developing creation. Um, we can just like everything else that's broken by the fall and we should be thinking really hard about technological modes of communication that steward us into the fullness of relationship rather than trick us into fake yeah. forms of vulnerability and you know we could have a whole series of podcasts on this you know this could be a whole career but I, it's an urgent call it's an urgent call i think for christians to become more not less involved in the formation of good modes of technology because it doesn't have to tear us apart it could it could bring us together in healthy ways Let's again, not a lot of time, but I wanted, I do want to talk about conflict because I think this is so hard for us. And again, in, in a cancel culture, it's very easy to have had a season with someone. And then especially because of technology, maybe somebody posted something that kind of, we read the wrong way or they meant it the wrong way or something mm -hmm. happened. And yeah. Yeah. boy, it can just be, especially in a, in a classical Christian school where we're typically kind of really close community together. And all of a sudden things can really unravel. I, and yet conflict can be a catalyst for a richer relationship, right? So how do we balance yeah. this thing out? That's the big one. I think it's less balance and more realizing that in light of the gospel, conflict can be a catalyst, a doorway for deeper friendship, not the end of it. And that is such a uh, breath of fresh air, to put it lightly. I mean, to in the face of cancel culture, it is such a different mode of living. Cancel culture is the idea that or toxic relationships. Like once person, a person displays um, a problem or like hurts you in some way, they're toxic or they're canceled or they're shamed out of relationship really forever. I mean, we treat relationships like disposable cups. I mean, if there's a problem, you just throw it away. Like literally it's trash now. That person is no longer useful to society or relationship. And it is such a legalistic and anti-gospel way to deal with human beings. The reality is that friendships have two ingredients, a center and another center. Unsurprisingly, we are going to hurt each other. We are going to have problems. And the, I, the whole, the beauty of the gospel is to say that through forgiveness, conflict doesn't have to be the end of relationship. It can be the doorway to deeper relationship. Now, obviously that's hard, but we should be teaching and reminding each other that that's normal. We shouldn't expect our friends to treat us perfectly. We should expect our covenant friends to be able to hurt us. Like marriage, we should expect that friction and difficulty might be the signs of sanctification, not poor choices, right? And obviously there's a wisdom and balance to, you know, there, there can be unhealthy relationships and we need to deal with that in too. But by and large, we need to move more towards sticking with people and forgiving them and working out differences instead of throwing them out because something went wrong. Well, and again, it's back to just helping our, our children or our students manage that expectation that he, it's going to happen. You, I love it, the statement in the book where you say to be friends with sinners is our only option. It's like, oh, 
Yeah. Wait, there aren't friends that aren't sinners? No, sorry. All of them are sinners. You're a sinner. <laughs> so going to disappoint you. Yeah. You're going to have a little train wreck here pretty soon. So when it happens, yeah. here's what you're going to do. Like, we, like again, we just don't have that pre- preparation discussions, I think, a lot of times. And then we wonder why the fifth grade girls are falling apart or why the high school boys are doing the thing in the locker room or, or you know, quote, bullying or real bullying. or what. It's like, why are we surprised? Or why aren't we getting ahead of it? So that's a yeah, really and and and. And we should come out those things, not with that, you know, oh, these people can't do relationship, but rather that they're human beings who need training. We need training to realize that don't rely on your sixth grade g- girlfriend to be the, um, the, the perfect image of a sister who will never hurt you. No, you're going to have conflict. She's going to say something that really hurts your yeah. feelings. And we actually have to go in there. That's where we press in and address it and learn to forgive. Um, and those expectations, I think, are so important because I think yeah. people expect like marriage, you know, oh, this person's going to make me happy forever. No, opposite. They're going to yeah, sanctify yeah. you into holiness. And that's a good thing <laughs> in the relationship. It'll be the refiner's fire. It might send you along the way. But in the end, and I want to end on this question, because you talk about the book that you believe friendship will actually save the world. So I know Jesus saves the world, but how is friendship going to save the world? Well, I think so much now about how friendship is probably should be the dominant mode of American evangelism, because we're in a time where we're so, we, we don't have the vocabulary to talk to each other. We don't have the same definitions about good and evil, right and wrong, man and woman, um, love and justice. But in a lonely culture, if we were kindling the fire of friendship, that is a not only a witness to the world that we live differently in community, but it's a major invitation. Because who doesn't want to pull up next to the fire and say, is there an extra chair here? Everybody I've seen come to know Christ or push deeper into their relationship with Christ in the American context. And I used to be a missionary in China. This was really different there. Apologetics worked. You could really argue rationally with people. There was a, there was a different culture going on. In the American context, I see relationships as the dominant mode of evangelism. And so building a culture in our schools and churches where friendship is, you know, come be a part of our small group, come be a part of our dinner club, come be a part of our family. Those are the ways we're going to draw people to Christ. And I really do think that friendship could be the most important ingredient to evangelism in our quote unquote secular age. That's beautiful. And it's what we need most as individuals. And so it's a, it's a gift when we have that friendship and then it's contagious to our family and our schools. And so Justin, thanks so much. There's a lot more we talk about. I know folks are going to be interested in the book. Tell them how they can get a copy and, and best ways to learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, the Made for People is the book here, and you can find it on Amazon or in your more local Christian bookstore if you have one. You can go and to justinwhitmoreearly.com. Um, I'm sure that'll be in the show notes, but you can also yep. Google Justin Early, author, lawyer, and you'll find me. And if you go to justinwhitmoreearly.com, you can sign up for my email list, which is where a great way to get you know updates or articles right. or half-baked ideas on the next book that I'm working on. <laughs> but right now, I'm sending out a lot on just different parts of the practices of covenant friendship and why we should be thinking about this in a culture of loneliness. So yeah. sign up there. And um, I would love people to get a copy of this book because it really does dive into specific detail. Um, if you're looking for a group for, or a book for your small group or your parent group or your you know teacher's cohort to read, this is a great book to read together yeah. because it's designed to steward you into deeper relationship. Yeah. And it's even better sitting by a fire pit out here. So that's it. Uh, 
pits. I would recommend it. I think you need to you need to come up with a line of fire pits, Justin, because I mean you you advocate. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so yeah, I should. Yeah, yeah, I see right by the fire pit. So. All right. Well, hey, Something thanks. I can affiliate link to other people. <laughs> there you go. I mean, maybe so. Well, we can't wait for that next book, and we can't wait to just continue to get your wisdom and guidance on this really important topic of friendship. Thanks so much for being on Basecamp Live again. It's always good to hang out with you. Thanks, Davies. It's been great. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davies' daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.